0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody. The other people podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show, more than 570 episodes and counting are available for free. It's all free. It's offered freely. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this show, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL Support the show. Patreon.com slash other PPL Okay.
1: You are not alone. You have found other people.
0: You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've it's done. I think it's really
1: beautiful. Gee, did what? Struggle, you know? Yeah, it was
0: incredible. You know, your head so see what was the really there. And now here's and your host, Brad Listy. Just one person, hey just one time. Oh. Hi, everybody. How's right. it going? Yeah, Welcome right. to the Other People Podcast. I am Brad Listy, and I'm here in Los Angeles, and uh, I have a very good show for you today. I have Roger McNamee on the program. He has written a book called Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. It is available now from Penguin Press, and it has been making a lot of noise. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of this book. I'm kind of an evangelist for it because not only is it a, is it a good book, it's a good story, but it also has uh, important information that you should be aware of if you are a person who has a Facebook account or is active on any other social media platform. Roger McNamee has been a a Silicon Valley investor for more than 35 years. He uh, co-founded a fund called Elevation with uh, Bono, the lead singer of U2. And critically, he was an early mentor to Mark Zuckerberg back in the day when Facebook was getting off the ground. And he was also one of Facebook's Uh, earliest investors. So his vantage point is unique, and he has got a very interesting story to tell, and he is trying to sound the bell and let people know what's going on with uh, this company and with social media platforms generally and what the consequences are. So it's worth hearing what he has to say, and it's very much worth reading Zucked. His new book. So Roger McNamee and I in conversation in just a moment. Before we get there, uh, I do want to make a special announcement. It's a very uh, exciting special announcement that I am making on behalf of Disorder Press, which is a a small independent press run by the sister brother team of Michaela Grantham and Joey Grantham. And uh, Joey, as many of you know, uh, has been a guest on this program. And he is also the new or a relatively new editor-in-chief of The Nervous Breakdown, which is the online literary magazine that I founded back in 2006. He writes under the name uh, Joseph Grantham. So, uh, as an offshoot of Disorder Press, uh, I am pleased to announce the launch of something called Disorder Salon in New Orleans, Louisiana. It's a new reading series. And it's going to be hosted by Michaela Grantham and a gentleman named John Collector. Joey Grantham will not be hosting on a regular basis as he does not live in New Orleans. He actually, uh, well, actually nobody really knows where he lives. (laughs) All we know about uh, the location of Joey Grantham at this point is that he's somewhere in the wilds of North Carolina. It's as much as I can tell you with any confidence, though. I do imagine he will be attending some of these events in new Orleans as time goes by. So the disorder salon, let me get you the, uh, critical details. It will be happening on the, well, actually, you know what I forgot. I'm supposed to play this music. <laughs> uh, let me see here. Mick Grantham specifically asked me to play this song as I make the announcement for a dramatic effect. So Let me cue this up. The Disorder Salon. It's a new monthly reading series that will happen in New Orleans on the first Thursday of every month from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. at Loa Bar, L-O-A, inside the International House Hotel located at 221 Camp Street. So the first Thursday of every month, 6 to 8 p.m. at Loa Bar at the International House Hotel, The goal of the Disorder Salon is to create a nationally recognized hub for the literary arts in the Big Easy. What better city to do such a thing, right? So the idea is that the readings will feel like a party. They won't be boring. They won't be stuffy. Drinks will be served. There will be music. Probably some dancing. Maybe a second line. I don't know. What else? Oh, uh, the very first Disorder Salon is set to take place just a few days from now on April 4th, 2019 and it will feature two authors from the Tyrant Books imprint both of whom incidentally have guested on this program before Bud Smith and Steve Anwell who uh, I had on just last week so if you're out there and you're listening whether you're a writer or an editor or a publicist or an agent and you would like to know more about the Disorder Salon and uh, how to participate, please feel free to send an email to disordersalon at gmail.com. That's disordersalon at gmail.com. You can also follow Disorder Press on Twitter at Disorder Press. My guest today is Roger McNamee. His new book, Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe, is available now from Penguin Press. And, uh, I mean, I think I just, I've, I've already kind of sang its praises and told you how important I think it is. So let's just get to the conversation. Here I am talking with Roger McNamee and his book one more time is called Zucked. I wish
1: I could say that, you know, that I saw it all from the beginning. I mean, the thing that's really difficult about the story itself is that I was a cheerleader and not questioning not really investigating despite a couple of really
0: significant warning signs along the way so let's for people listening uh, why don't you summarize like you were an early investor and an, yeah. and a mentor so so the way to think about this is that I started
1: investing in the technology industry in 1982 which is the very tail end of the Apollo era of Silicon Valley, when the space shuttle and the government were the primary focus, and the personal computer industry was just beginning. So I was there from the beginning of the PC business, and I'm the same age as people like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, and so getting to know people like that was a completely organic thing, because they weren't yet as famous as they would eventually be and god knows they weren't as rich and you know so i grew up with the industry and i'm there for the pc industry i'm there for you know when enterprise products for for businesses really take off and when the internet begins and i'm i i started in mutual funds which was a place where you know in the 80s you could be involved in tech in a very kind of academic way, right? It wasn't a job you went to to get rich. It was a job you went to because you were interested in. You were a nerd. I was a nerd, and my brother had given me a speak and spell in 1978 and and said to me, you know, because they can make this thing talk with a couple of AA batteries and have a screen and all, this means you're going to be able to hold all of your personal information in your hand in just a few years. Is this your older brother? Is my older brother. And I... I, that idea just grabbed me, and weirdly, it was like 18 years before the Palm Pilot, or 17 years before the Palm Pilot. It was, you know, the year after the Apple II. It's like still three years to the IBM PC. I mean, his that idea he had, which literally went right out of his head, and I don't think he ever thought about it again. But I couldn't let it go, and I was terrible at math, and so I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to make. A prototype of this idea. I mean, it was demonstrated too early, and I was not nearly clever enough to figure out how to do it. So I go into the research world in this very academic setting because I wanted to be there when it happened, and so I grew up with the industry, and I actually got to be there. I got to be involved with Palm, and and uh, you know, so it it was in many ways, a perfect situation. And then in 2006, I get an email from somebody at Facebook who says, my boss has a crisis and he needs to talk to somebody who's both experienced and objective and who can keep a secret. Would you meet with him? And I say, well, sure. I'm pretty free next week. And he goes, no, no, one o'clock today. And I go, okay. And so Mark Zuckerberg, age 22, comes to my office. I'm 50. The company's two years old. And he comes. I mean, it was straight out of Central Casting. He's got the hoodie, the flip-flops, the (laughs) carrier bag. He comes and sits in my office. And imagine this scene. I had started a firm with Bono from U2 called Elevation, and one of our partners had been the president of Electronic Arts, the video game company. So we had one conference room that's not set up like a conference room, it's set up like a living room with this, what was then a giant flat panel TV with huge speakers, and this arcade video game that had been set up with a computer inside of it that had every vid- arcade game ever made in the history of the universe it had like 5,000 different games in, in every variant, every variant of galaxy and every variant of Frogger. I mean, everything. And the room is totally soundproofed. So it's kind of weird if nobody says anything, it's really dead. So Mark sits down maybe three feet from me, so closer to me than I am to you. We're in comfy chairs. And I say, Mark, we don't know each other, so I have to say something to you, because once you start talking, you'll assume that anything I say after that is affected by what you've told me. So I need to give you some context, because you, otherwise we're just not going to have a free exchange of ideas. He said, go ahead. And I go, if it hasn't already happened, either Microsoft or Yahoo is going to offer $1 billion for Facebook. Now, keep in mind that is two years old, they've had $9 million in sales, which seems like a big number in a normal sense, but realistically, in tech terms, it's nothing. And I say, they're going to offer you a billion dollars. And everybody you know, your parents, your board of directors, your management team, your employees are going to tell you to take the money, Mark. You're going to have 650 million bucks. You're going to be able to change the world with 650 million bucks. And I said, you know, I've thought about this a lot, and I think you have something really special. I think you've solved the core problem of big networks because you require authenticated identity. What does that mean? You could only get on Facebook then if you had an
0: email address from a university or a high school. Uh, So, and that was the differentiator between Facebook and MySpace. And everything that came before it. Everything that came before
1: it basically permitted... uh, Anonymity, because in the early days of the internet, one of the things that we all got wrong was we thought idealistically that people would behave well and they, giving them anonymity was giving them a benefit that they wouldn't abuse. And it turned out just the opposite happened that anonymity meant that trolls would overwhelm any network almost overnight. And by requiring authenticated identity, Mark had something totally different. I was convinced, and I told him this, that he would be bigger than Google was at that time. And I said, Look, any company that buys you, but especially Microsoft or Yahoo, they're going to kill Facebook. I mean, it's just never going to achieve its potential. And if you really believe in your vision, if you really believe in this idea you've created, you need to see it through because there've been a lot of great entrepreneurs who've had two brilliant ideas. There's never been anybody who's had two brilliant ideas at exactly the right moment. And this is the right moment for Facebook. So no matter what they tell you, you're never going to get to do this again. What happened after that was just the most surreal five minutes of my entire life. So imagine you're in this completely sound, deadened room, <laughs> and I have just laid this really heavy thing on him. I'm expecting like some kind of feedback. What I get instead is dead silence and pantomimed thinker poses. So, you know, it's hands on, chin on hands, then hand on forehead, then looking up, then looking up in the other direction. For how long? So at the one-minute mark, I'm thinking, this is weird. At two minutes, I'm starting to get really uncomfortable. <laughs> At three minutes, my fingernails are digging into the cushions of this comfy chair I'm in. At four minutes, I'm literally ready to scream. And somewhere between four and five minutes, he finally relaxes. And I realize in the back of my head, so there are two things going on. One, in my head, I'm thinking to myself, wow, I have never been in the presence of anybody Who has thought so hard about something i said right because in some ways that was a real compliment right and in other ways this is really weird right i mean extremely socially awkward right i mean just like i socially (laughs) awkward but i'm i'm a nerd myself and i'm i have learned to recognize character traits in successful entrepreneurs and Focus is a really important one when you're trying to build a tech company. And this guy clearly had off the rails focus. Anyway, he relaxes and he goes, you're just not going to believe this, but what you just described,
0: that is why I'm here. That exact thing just happened. How did you know? So he was taking five minutes to try to decide think, through whether or not to trust confess, me, to trust you, to trust me. Right. And
1: and the fact that I had literally nailed the exact thing, including all of the, like the dialogue with the venture capitalist about funding his next company and all that, he goes, it, it he might as well trust me because I've already figured it out. But I hadn't. Well, and I said to him, dude, I don't know anything. All I did was, I've been doing this for 25 years. I know these people. I know this industry. I know how they behave. And this is what happens with companies in your situation, And uh, I mean, I got lucky on the billion dollars, but it was, you know, I didn't know anything. And anyway, that he, he didn't know what to do because he goes, I don't actually want to sell the company. I really do want to follow the vision, but gosh, I don't want to disappoint everybody. And I said, well, I think if you really believe the vision that you're capable of delivering it. And if you do, they're going to thank you for not taking this deal. It took maybe the whole meeting lasted maybe half an hour. He, it, he had a way to stop it. I showed him how to do it and how to do it in a way that wouldn't piss everybody off. So he well, what was that way? Oh, w- w- was to sit down and everybody say, look, you guys signed up for this vision and we're proving the vision and you can see it. People are signing up like crazy. Keep in mind, they hadn't even done newsfeed yet. The thing was so early it was it was like a proto Facebook right, but he hadn 't made any mistakes. in fact, he went a really long way before he made any mistakes that he would have to undo and normally, in a startup you 'd get all sorts of things wrong right in the early days, and you have to you 're constantly backing and filling but he'd really he 'd gotten the right the original idea, which was this secure, authenticated thing where you controlled your privacy and you controlled who you shared stuff with. That was genius. And in my head, I'm thinking, he's going to make the biggest thing ever. He's going to get, and imagine me as Dr. Evil here, 100 million (laughs) people. I'm thinking in my head, he's going to have this incredible success story. I mean, the notion of 2 billion people would never have occurred to me because, well, it it came up later. And I I told him the problem with once you get into the billions is that in order to do that, you're either going to have to do things or operate in places that should make you uncomfortable, right? That you, you mean know, geographic places? Y- y- yeah. Or, or with people or with business terms that you're not going to like, right. Or you shouldn't like, um, no, when he told me he wanted to go for a billion, that's the message I gave him because I just
0: said, look, seriously, man, there's such thing as too big. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. So that first meeting you had with him, with this incredible five-minute silence, you gave him the advice to not sell. And then the other... No, no. I gave him the path for how to not sell. He didn't want to sell. I
1: told him a selling was nuts. He already believed that, but he thought he, he didn't have a choice. And I just gave him the path through. Got it. Yeah. Don't give me too much credit. It wasn't like I changed his mind or anything. He didn't know me from a whole the ground.
0: But your intuitive sense of where things were with the company was pretty spot on. You give yourself In that retrospect, much credit.
1: Yes. In retrospect, I, I made that call, right? Okay.
0: And so then the other thing that you... Um, like there were so, two, two... so that
1: begins what is a three-year period of me being a close advisor to him. Okay. And,
0: and, your, and your early impressions of him were positive. Oh, really positive. And here's the thing.
1: It wasn't like I'm sitting there thinking, this is a guy I'm going to socialize with. I'm 50. He's 22. And uh, we never had. One time, he invited me over to his house for the evening. But for the most part, I just interacted with him in his office. I would go over there at least once a month, but typically two or three times a month. And I was very focused on a narrow set of problems that were all what I would characterize as early-stage company problems. So imagine this. Everybody in his management team wanted to sell the company. So if he really wants to go after the vision, he can't have the top people who wanted to sell the company. I mean, they've already shown you where they want to go. So he's got to change out those people. So finding a way to get to to help the guy who was the chief operating officer leave the company to get the chief financial officer out. Those were things I did. The Winklevoss brothers. You may have seen the movie, The Twins. The Winklevoss. The Winklevoss, right. So that whole thing blows up in the first six months that I'm advising him. And so he needs to figure out how to handle that PR. And that was something I knew a lot about. And so I said so did
0: So did he, Mark Zuckerberg, did he steal the idea for Facebook? I have no
1: idea. I mean... Uh, I, I don't know, but let's keep in mind how technology works. Okay, ideas in the tech world are they're fungible and ephemeral. It's, it really comes down to who can make it happen. There's no question that Mark did not originate the idea of an online Facebook. You know, there are other people besides the Winklevi who had that idea at Harvard at the same time. And because uh, it, se- it seems like with things like this. But to be clear, that, I don't think that's totally the issue. OK, so I think the issue with Mark was that he wasn't. And again, I don't know this, so I, I don't really want to spend time on it, because I, I think that what happens in the tech world is that ideas percolate up. And the trick, if you have a great idea, is to make sure that you can assemble around you the resources necessary to turn it into something. Mark had that ability and he had that ability and it was not married to what I would characterize as a collegial attitude towards those people around him. So he was, I think it is demonstrably correct that he was exclusionary relative to the people who contributed to his ideas more often than he was collegial with them. And I don't know that history intimately. I've heard it described by people who are there. And, you know, I think the movie is at least by horseshoes and hand grenades in the right basic area. Right? right. Right. I mean, I do think that, that he was, um, by the way, he didn't invent that. Right. I mean, you know, Steve jobs didn't invent the apple too. Right. Why? <laughs> right. Right. Steve though, was the guy who could take it across the line. And st- the difference was that jobs at least <laughs> kept Wozniak around. Right. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and gates had paul allen right yeah who who is zuckerberg's right hand or, or the other person well the way to think about it is that those people well dustin moskovitz inside the company but there were other people who were there at the same time who did not get brought along and by the way it may have been their fault for all i know okay i just don't know yeah and the point is it doesn't matter okay what matters? It, what I mean it doesn't matter is we're where we are today. And my expertise is not about what happened in the early days at Harvard. My expertise is in what happened from 2006 to 2009, when the company went from being tiny and not having newsfeed to being a juggernaut with, um, you know, hundreds of millions of active users and still no business model, but they had all the pieces in place for what the company would become. And what happens is in 2008, they run an experiment. And Mark had this thing where he fundamentally believed, this is very idealistic, that connecting everybody, everybody on one network was the most important thing anyone could do, right? This idea we were going to bring everybody together. But it was combined with this notion that was idiosyncratic to him, which was that the real th- bug in humanity was that people didn't share enough, and they were wrong about that. And he was going to make them share, whether they wanted or not. Right? That was basically the thing he brought to this. So his mistakes were always pushing too hard to force people to be more um, to be more transparent
0: and. Can I ask you a question about this? Do you feel that his pushing people to be more transparent and to share things was born of some idealistic impulse about human relations, or was it about profitability? I
1: I don't think it was about profitability, okay? Because I think in the early days, I don't think that was the way he was thinking about it. I think it was about... I think he realized that more... Mm -hmm data and more information would make the power of the network much greater. One of the things they got right at Harvard, I mean, from the, literally from the word go, was that the network architecture that they chose was taken straight from a a field of mathematics called graph theory. And they realized that by having absolute identity, you simplified the way the network architecture would work, because everybody was only one point on the graph. And that idea was simply genius. No one had ever thought about human networks that way before. What does that mean? Everybody's one point on the graph. So if you if you have anonymity, you can be lots of points on the graph. So things can reach you in lots of places and there's no way to tie it all together. So you wind up having to have a much larger network for the number of people who are using it because if everybody's three or four identities, then the thing's going to be three or four times as large and you're going to have all kinds of inefficiency baked into the fact that people aren't one single place. If everybody is one point on the network, if they are who they are, right? Then that makes the network much much simpler, much easier to operate. And it basically improves the efficiency of sharing information. Everything only needs to get to you in one place. And there's no, the thing that they're trying to avoid is friction. And if you have three different accounts and you need to log on three separate times, that is friction. If you have only one account and everything comes there, that eliminates friction. And if you're trying to go from zero to the whole world in a hurry, that's a really good way to get there. So that was a
0: stroke of genius in the early days?
1: I mean, that was one of several, but that one was simply off-the-rails brilliant, okay? And the the other reason it was brilliant was because every computer scientist had at some point been trained in graph theory and had some f- frame of reference for it, um, or at least they could very easily. It was a mathematical thing they could all really relate to. And anyway, that insight, I think, was simply brilliant and you know bill gates's great contribution was the notion that there was going to be a computer on every desk in every office in every home that was a genius insight but it was not there was nothing mathematical about it that was just a goal mark's thing was he was going to connect everybody and he had a demonstrably superior architecture for getting that done and to me no shock that they got there so he gets off on the start and in the period I'm involved a thing happens which they called beacon and the notion of beacon was that facebook in order to make its advertising more valuable was trying to integrate things from the real world so they went to all these companies and basically said hey when somebody buys something from you we're going to post it on facebook like right away in people's news feed like I just went and bought something at whatever store now if you think about it from the company's point of view this is a form of free advertising and it's a way of building that bridge but from the user's point of view this is just trouble waiting to happen yeah this is like tone deaf to me oh beyond tone deaf so the the, the iconic story of what killed uh beacon was um a young man bought an engagement ring on overstock.com <laughs> So he gets it at a deep discount. It's a diamond. It's a beautiful thing. And it gets posted immediately to his Facebook newsfeed. So his soon-to-be fiancé, who doesn't know she's soon-to-be fiancé, finds out that he's going to propose on his newsfeed. All his friends find out. And they find (laughs) out where he bought the ring and what he paid for it. You can imagine that was not a successful way to find out right, right. and people reacted with a, an intensity that forced facebook to cancel uh beacon almost right away
0: and, and just so people listening understand because i think i think most people get this but it's important to underline it i think is that facebook makes its money or at least the bulk of its money from advertising That's its business model. Yeah. It makes basically all of its money from Facebook. Yeah. And so it's a very sophisticated and has very sophisticated uh, data operation that is appealing to advertisers. But it didn't then.
1: Okay. And they were having to do a lot of experiments. And so what happened was when, when Mark swapped out the chief operating officer who was there at the time that I met him, that was in 2007. He wanted to get somebody new and he came to me and asked me for my advice which requires me to go back and tell a story i mentioned to you that my business partner was bono i met bono in i in 2000 but i got introduced to him or he to me in 1999 in those days i was helping my favorite rock and roll band the grateful dead
0: mine too Oh, there we go. I talk about the Grateful Dead on this show all the time. Okay, so we have so, that in so, so,
1: <laughs> so imagine this. So Jerry dies. Yeah. They've got 60 employees and no tour to support them. I'm a deadhead. I've never been backstage. I don't know anybody, but I'm known to be a deadhead and I'm a tech guy. And I'm basically, somebody brings them this real estate deal and I don't know anything about real estate. And so I, I take the meetings with them and, you know, I meet Phil Lesh and I go and do these meetings and it's like. I don't know anything about real estate, but I say, hang on, you've got this thing that one of your road is created called dead.net. It's a website where fans can buy, you know, T-shirts and CDs and they buy them from people who work for the band in the warehouse. And like this, this really personal thing, just like the old ticketing thing had been. And I said, I think we can do something with that. I'll bet we can find a way to syndicate this so that every band can get a grateful like experience selling to their fans, and then you'll have this thing that's really valuable, and you'll be able to support all these employees. So I spent three years working on that project, and I go and visit with Fish and Dave Matthews and Bob Dylan, and not with the band members so much, but with their you know management teams, and Pearl Jam and Jackson Brown, and so Bono hears about this, and he reaches out to a person he's working with he's it's 1999 he's working on this thing called the millennium debt project which is designed to basically for have the u.s and other major economies forgive the debt of countries in africa and around the world who are never going to repay it whose economies are basically dead because they've borrowed a lot of money they can't pay back and so have them forgive it as part of the millennium and then let them start over again and revive the economy and it worked incredibly well his contact in the Treasury Department was a woman named Cheryl Sandberg. Oh. So, I mean, this, this is the part that gets so amazing. So he calls Cheryl and says, I got to find this guy who's working for the Grateful Dead. And she goes, You're not even going to believe this. But my brother-in-law not only works with him, he's working with him on that project. I know exactly who that guy is. I've never met him, but I know who he is. So Cheryl arranges for me to meet Bono to tell him about what we're doing. And I meet Cheryl. So Clinton administration ends. It's January 2011. And so Cheryl comes out of 2001. Excuse me.
0: And and Cheryl had been working for Larry Summers.
1: She was the chief of staff to the secretary of the treasury, Larry Summers, and was in charge of this thing. And so she and Bono really revived the economies of, I don't know, maybe dozens of different countries. I mean, took them from being essentially moribund to alive again i mean bono isn't enough i
0: mean he's not only a a great rock star
1: but he's he's a savvy individual and a politically savvy individual well and 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 a great humanitarian right that's what I you have to be effective to be a great humanitarian amen and cheryl was the way he got it done right so huge kudos to cheryl too right for recognizing that this was unlikely to be something that was gonna make a difference in her life directly but it was worth doing anyway right so she introduces me to Bono. I meet Bono and Edge the day after they win the Grammy for "Beautiful Day" in 2001. So we begin this relationship. I go over, and as I describe in the book, I wind up having a health crisis on the way back from visiting them in in uh, uh, in Dublin. But Cheryl comes out of the White House and in, uh, or in yeah, the Treasury Department in January of. 2001, comes to California to find her future and hangs out in my office for, I don't know, maybe a couple of months. might have only been six weeks, but whatever it was, she's just looking around and going and meeting people. And she's thinking she wants to go in the investment business and that maybe she'd work with us. And then my partner goes, are you kidding? This woman is going to change the world. we got to get her to Google because Google's just getting rolling then. And we were part of Kleiner, Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers, which was ground zero of the Dot com world. So your fund was like in a subsidiary? Yeah. And so we were part of Kleiner Perkins, and so John Doerr, who was the Google investor at Kleiner Perkins, was four doors, three doors down from my office. And so we take Cheryl to meet John, and one thing leads to another, and she goes to work at Google. So now we roll back forward to 2007, and Mark is looking for a number two. And Cheryl has built AdWords at not by herself, in a team of three, with people you've you've heard of, who you know, uh Marissa Mayer and uh uh who Susan, went on to Susan, head Yahoo. Yeah, and Susan Wachicki who goes on and does YouTube. And so the three of them, and obviously other people, but Cheryl does the the business side of it, the advertising part of it, and scaling all that. And so she comes to me, coincidentally, at exactly the same time Mark's beginning to think about this problem and says I've got a job offer to go to the Washington Post. And I go, Are you high? You guys are killing the Washington Post. Like, why are you going to go from Google, which is winning, to the Washington Post, which is getting killed? That's nuts. I said, If you're going to do that, you got to go look at Facebook. Long pause. She goes, He's 23. (laughs) I go, I'm fully aware of that. She goes, I don't think that's going to work. I go, Cheryl, his mom is a doctor. He's got nothing but sisters. I think he's that rare person who can work great with women. I think he should take the meeting. I go to Mark and say, I think he should hire Shale Sandberg.
0: And he goes, well, long pause. And he goes, how, how, how long of a pause this time? <laughs> Not, I mean, <laughs> you know, 10 seconds. And he goes,
1: she's at Google. Google's nothing like Facebook. And I'm going to Mark, excuse me, is Google not the closest thing to Facebook on the face of the earth today is the building of AdWords at Google, not the best training you could have for whatever it is you're going to do here. I mean, seriously, he goes, you're right. So anyway, it it, it takes a little while, but they get them together and they hit it off. And so she goes to work there and, so she's there when beacon happens beacon. I don't think is her idea, but she's there when it happens. And we have this conversation that was the first signal I should have picked up. I mean, I did pick it up, but I didn't factor in properly until much later, which is when beacon blows up, I call her up and I go, Cheryl, whose head is going to roll. I mean, this wasn't like just a failure of execution. This was a brain damaged idea. Obviously a terrible idea. So, Somebody's got to f- go down for this, or you're just going to have things like this repeat endlessly. And she said something that really took my breath away. She goes, Roger, at Facebook or a team, we succeed as a team and we fail as a team. Nobody gets individual credit on the way up, nobody gets individual blame on the way down. I go, But, but Cheryl, on the way up, that's not a problem. But on the way down, how do you get people to tell you if you're doing something wrong? How do you how does anybody feel they have any stake that allows them to any incentive to 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 point out when you're making a mistake? And she goes, What would you have us do? Fire the entire team? I that I filed that conversation away. And I didn't really I didn't do anything with it. I just, well, I did do something with it. I realized that we had reached a point where I was probably not going to be a great advisor to Mark anymore. And this was what year? So that's 2008. But I think the conversation might have been the beginning of 2009. And so I start fading out in 2009. In 2011, I'm at a conference and this guy named Eli Pariser, who was the head of Move On, gives this TED talk at Ted, in which he explains that his news feed on Facebook and his feed on Google are no longer neutral, that the companies are sculpting what he sees according to what they think he likes. So he has a roughly equal number of friends left and right, but he pays more attention to the stuff that's liberal than on the stuff that's conservative. And his news feed no longer shows any conservative stuff in it. And he's gone, I didn't ask for that. And these things pretend to be neutral, but they're not. This was, I mean, I was gobsmacked. I literally ran up and introduced myself to him after the TED Talk. And I have these two data points. And realistically, with those two data points, if I'd been a better analyst, I would have immediately become much more suspicious. But I didn't. And shame on me company goes public a year later and after that everything's more or less i mean the, the ipo itself is a mess and that caused me great angst and i voiced protest at the time
0: and you were a, a
1: early investor we, so you had so, a- so i had a stake but not not big enough to have any voice and uh again and our, our firm's investment just it was significant to us but this was the biggest ipo in tech so you know we did our voice didn't count and after that everything seems to be going perfectly and so i just sort of sit back and i'm basking in it and yet there there are signs that silicon valley's really changed in fact i chose not to do a second elevation fund because i'd found myself seeing all the things that were obviously going to work i think a Zynga spotify uber is great examples where i just was philosophically not in line with what their mission was you know that their their business practices and their goals were i mean look for other people totally fine but for me i'm i i come from a different value system i'm a deadhead right, right, right. i just you know I, I i they were too exploitative for me you know, in Spotify's case, exploitative of musicians in Uber's case, exploitative of communities and drivers and, in Zynga's, it was just like, whatever. So I realized I can't do another fund because if I'm not going to own the best things going on Silicon Valley, what good am I? And so I'm fading out and 2015, I finally exit the business. And then in January, 2016, Democratic primary beginning aiming at New Hampshire and I start to see things on Facebook that do not compute what did you see so the first things I saw were a series of memes from groups that were ostensibly tied to the Bernie Sanders campaign so we like Bay Area for Bernie or something and unlike the first day it's one really nasty misogynistic meme spread by say one of my friends the next day it's a different meme but spread by four of, of my friends. And then like the day after that spread by eight and then like 16, it's like growing on this rate that says to me, this is not organic. Somebody's spending money. And I can't believe the Bernie Sanders campaign would be spending money to spread this. I go look at the pages and there's nothing on them, but these memes. Right. And it's like, what the hell's going on here? I didn't know. So like, these are Facebook group pages. Yeah. Facebook yeah. group pages. And, uh, and you know, I run the Facebook group for Moon Alice, my band, and it's like, I know that things don't grow like that if people aren't spending money. It's just that Facebook doesn't
0: give you enough reach to... Yeah, because organic reach, this is something I noticed when I was running a page for my uh, online lit mag. In the beginning, you would post something on your group page, and it would reach pretty much all of your followers, or most of them, and then it gradually winnowed down to, like, 1% or something. Right. So it, you're-
1: it would have started at roughly 25% for the, you know, whenever you posted something in the early days. Oh, and that's all it was? I think so. But, you know, the key thing was it would be different every day. So, you know, what would happen is they'd get something that would bring them to the page, and then they'd see everything, right? So yeah. you'd, you'd basically be able to reach everybody. And plus, people in groups share. And because they share it, people are going to see, but you're right. It got down to like 1%. And, uh, so I'm going, that's weird. And then like a month and a half later, I read a report that Facebook has expelled a company that was using its ad tools to gather information on people who expressed an interest in black lives matter. And then they were selling that information. The identities of these people to police departments. Now, Facebook did the right thing, they expelled them, but what I realized was this is one incredibly evil, and two, the harm has been done. There is no way to undo the police departments having this data on completely innocent people whose only crime was they wanted to find out what was going on with black lives matter right I mean that 's like excuse me that 's just wrong that 's orwellian it 's really deeply evil and again facebook didn 't do it it was done with the tools. then in June, the United Kingdom votes on the referendum, whether or not to leave the European Union, what they call Brexit. And the night before the referendum, it's going to be 4% gap and they're going to stay. But the final outcome is 4% gap and they leave. Eight-point swing. And the only thing I could think about that might have accounted for that was that the Leave campaign, the people who wanted to leave the European Union, had been all over Facebook with this really inflammatory anti-immigrant message, blaming immigrants for everything wrong in the United Kingdom, both real and imagined. Whereas the Remain campaign had this really neutral, like, hey, we have the world's greatest deal. Why screw it up? But nothing emotional in it at all. What if Facebook gave inflammatory political campaigns a structural reach advantage? Now, we later learned that Trump got a 17 to 1 cost advantage over Clinton because inflammatory messages just travel much better. So I see this thing. I don't know what it means because I really I mean. I just haven't been paying close enough attention. The business model has happened since I stopped being an insider, and so I don't really understand the mechanics of it, and shame on me, but I didn't. And okay? when you say the business model, you mean newsfeed? I mean the business model being that, that their advertising requires people to pay attention. They have to see the ads, and the problem with having ads in Newsfeed is that it looks just like everything else it 's both the good and the bad, but it's it 's unlike a TV ad which interrupts the program and makes you look, or a radio ad does the same thing, or a full page ad a magazine. They all interrupt your programming and you look at the ad with newsfeed everything's the good and the bad is it 's all the same
0: and, and so, also to distinguish between television and radio advertising or print advertising. Social media advertising, you know, is making use of all of this data so that advertisers. So, so, yeah, let me walk you through that. So the first thing that they're doing, right, is they got to get you to spend more
1: time on the site. Well, and to do that, they got to get you to come back. So they use a whole lot of psychological tricks, but I don't know any of this. So if you give me a minute, let me come back to this. okay? because it really does matter. And if I can tell it in the story arc, it it, it fits better. So the, the final thing that pushes me over the top is that in the fall, there's a report that the Department of Housing and Urban Development has cited Facebook because its advertising tools um, allow people in the real estate market to discriminate on the basis of race or religion. And that's kind of like the Black Lives Matter thing. It's These are ad tools being used to harm people. And I write an opinion piece for the Recode block which is a tech blog in California, in which I basically go, I think that the business model and algorithms of Facebook are giving bad actors the ability to harm innocent people. And I'm really unhappy about this. Now, instead of publishing it, I send it to Mark and Cheryl. So Mark Zuckerberg and Cheryl Sandberg.
0: And and place this in time again, when is this?
1: October 30th. 2016, so right before the nine election. Nine days before the election. And, it, and, and the key thing is it talks about everything I've seen, but it also talks about internal stuff. Peter Thiel had said that summer that, that he thought that the, the, uh, that the constitutional amendment that gave women the right to vote was a mistake. And I'm going, I'm sorry, but 51% of your audience is women. I just think that's really inappropriate. Okay. You know, there are all these things going on culturally, business model algorithms. And I just said, look, you guys are there's something wrong going on here and you need to get on top of it. I send them the op-ed and the op-ed is pretty emotional. And in retrospect, I wish I had rewritten it in a calmer thing, but I just sent it to them. They got right back to me, both of them, both Mark and Cheryl. And they basically had messages that said, we really appreciate you reaching out. And we disagree with you. We think these are isolated examples and that we've taken care of them. And, you know, nothing to see here, but we take you seriously. So we're going to delegate one of our core inside guys, Dan Rose, who's a friend of yours. And you and Dan can work this out. So I talked to Dan a couple of times Then the election happens and I go completely ballistic because, I mean, we'd already had the signal that the Russians were interfering. And I just go to Dan and I use several expletives that are not in the book, but. The Russians tipped the election using Facebook. You saw it, you you, you, you you couldn't miss it. I mean, if he'd seen what I'd seen, you know, you know, all of a sudden I'm sitting there wondering on the Bernie stuff, right? Could that have been, right? And again, I don't know anything. I have no inside information at all. But I'm paid to be an analyst, right? My job is to connect dots on things that are not super super obvious, right? And that's I've been doing that at that point for 34 years, right? So. I I trust my spidey sense. Anyway, so after the election, I'm going to Dan. And he's saying to me, Roger, it doesn't matter. We're okay. The law gives us a safe harbor for the actions of third parties. We're not responsible for what they do. We're a platform, not a media company. You may have heard them use that phrase. Of course, yeah. And I go, Dan, you're in the trust business. If your users decide that you are responsible for harming their lives, there's no law on earth that's going to save you. You have got to do what Johnson & Johnson did when the guy put the poison bottles of Tylenol in Chicago in like 83, I think it was. Which, and what did they do? They took every bottle of Tylenol off every shelf in the United States of America, and they kept it off the market until they invented tamper-proof packaging. Every piece of tamper-proof packaging you see on medicine today is a result of that guy poisoning bottles of Tylenol in Chicago. And they took a short-term hit, but the trust that they built with their customers was huge because they recognized that even though they didn't put the poison in there, they were responsible for the health and well-being of these people. And I'm going, you have got to do the same thing here. I don't know what happened. You may not know what happened. I mean, again, I'm thinking they're the victim. And I'm just going, but you have to recognize that people are going to question what happened here. And it's really important for you to, to do what's necessary to protect their their interests.
0: So, and just to be clear, so that listeners are, understand, it's not that Russians hacked Facebook. No, no, no. What the Russians,
1: well, we don't even know this yet. So let me continue with it. So, anyway, long story short, I spent three months trying to persuade Facebook to make this change, and they're having none of it. I mean, they couldn't have been more gracious, and they couldn't have been less interested in actually changing their behavior. What I don't know at the time is that they do, in fact, have their security chief Alex Stamos look into it. He provides a report that apparently was pretty revealing and um Cheryl and others in the management team suppress it so it doesn't come out. Uh President Obama meets with Mark at some conference in like three or four weeks after the election and they have a short conversation about it and nothing comes of that either. What happens is that I'm wondering what the hell am I gonna do? And then in April 2017, so a couple months later, I am co hosting the technology show on Bloomberg TV, which I do, I don't know, once or twice a year. And I'm randomly assigned a day when a guy named Tristan Harris is going to be interviewed. He had been the design ethicist at Google. He just appeared on 60 Minutes, where he was talking about this thing called brain hacking. And this now comes to the question you asked earlier, which is that. Tristan's an expert in persuasive technology. He's gone to Stanford. He's studied from the guy who wrote the textbook. Who is B.J. Fogg? Whose name is B.J. Fogg. And and what happened was that basically we've had persuasive technology since the beginning of of public relations uh, and propaganda during the First World War, so for 100 years. And... But it was always a broadcast thing because all the communications media were broadcast. And in the early days, so were computers. So persuasive technology wasn't that harmful. We had, as a society, agreed that advertising and public relations were were fine. They were just a standard business tool. But personal computers and then smartphones changed that really dramatically because suddenly you had a real-time feedback loop that could be personalized one-to-one. And that shifted the power of persuasion really dramatically. So if you're Facebook or you're Google, your ads are in a newsfeed of some kind, you need people to spend a lot of time there to make the ads powerful. It's called engagement called what they call engagement. And so there are two ways to do that. The first thing you gotta do is get them to come back and you do that with rewards. And this is like a, you know, a slot machine. So there are all kinds of rewards, you know, notifications, right? You're getting this message that says, Hey, there's something new, right? And it's, you think to yourself, it's somehow personalized to you, but it's not some AI is sending this thing to you and it's sending to you at the precise moment. It has determined you're vulnerable and need a new reward. So it's not like predictable at all. In fact, it's designed to be not predictable. You have likes, you have you know, tagging, all these different things. Color schemes. It, all of this stuff is designed to essentially get you to come back and do something specific. Then, in the newsfeed itself, they have what are called, what Eli called filter bubbles. And this is the notion of. So, Eli Pariser. Eli Pariser, you sculpt each person's newsfeed around things that they've already liked and already shared in order to encourage more and more of that. And the problem is that if people are coming back every single day and sometimes more than once a day, and you're constantly reinforcing what they already believe, their ideas are going to become more rigid and more extreme. And essentially it contributes to polarization. And so when Google and Facebook went to this notion of filter bubbles, they took a country that already had a moderate level of polarization and took it to this really extreme level. So it was very unhealthy politically. And importantly, because of the notifications and the like buttons and all that stuff, people built habits coming back every day. The thing's so convenient. They effectively trained us. If we had a moment of peace and quiet, instead of daydreaming, we'd take out our phone. Right? I always ask people, when do you check the phone first thing in the morning? Do you check it before you pee or while you're <laughs> peeing? Right, Because those are the only two options. Right, And the question is, well, how many people are addicted? And I don't know. But once you have a habit, some people are going to flip over into addiction. And it's a non-trivial percentage of the population. And myself, I was completely addicted. I think. I think most people I know, on some level, or at struggle. least a little addicted, right? And so I think that's true too. And but the people who are most addicted can be teased with things like conspiracy theories or disinformation, and a, a minority of the population will find that appealing. But that minority is much larger than it used to be, thanks to social media. And the way to think about it is. How many people believed in flat Earth 30 years ago? Or things like Flat Earth. Things that were demonstrably not true. It was small, five percent of the population, maybe, maybe a little bit bigger that. But today, one third of the population are convinced there is no connection between human beings and their actions and climate change. And that is demonstrably false, that assumption. There's somewhere between five and ten percent that believe there's a connection between vaccines and autism. And that is, again, demonstrably not true. The guy who originally said it made it up. The whole thing was never true. And so, and there's almost no overlap between those two communities. So you look at it and you go, wow, that might be 40% of the population believes something that's demonstrably not true. And I look at that and I go, yikes, hard to have a democracy if you can't agree on the facts. So the, what happened is that these filter bubbles on social media essentially give everybody their own Truman Show. You can have your own unique set of facts, your own reality. And in a political context, that's crazy, right? And Tristan is saying this in this interview with me, and I'm like, I'm I'm facepalming. I'm gobsmacked. This is like, oh my God, this explains everything.
0: So, people listening, uh, just to make sure they get it, the financial interests of these companies is connected to you staying on their platform, and they have figured out That a way to get you to stay on the platform is through persuasive technology, dopamine hits, likes, notifications, but also through delivering content via algorithms to your news feed or your Twitter feed or whatever it is that agitate, reinforce your uh, bias. So the way to think about it is that the lower you go on the brainstem,
1: if you can go to the lizard brain things like fear and outrage, those turn out to be far more valuable. Because if you're afraid or you're outraged, you share the thing that makes you afraid or outraged. Because if you can get other people to share your fear and your outrage, that makes you feel better. Whereas if somebody shares something happy like a wedding photo, some people are going to be resentful. They're going to be jealous. So it doesn't go as far. And MIT did this amazing study that said that disinformation is shared by human beings 70% more and it moves Six times faster, right? So it goes seventy percent further and six times faster.
0: So disinformation, than facts. It, disinformation is good for business. Really good for business. And the place you
1: really see this is on YouTube, right? I mean, YouTube is like, I mean, nonsense is the bread and butter of my, YouTube. My daughter loves Infowars. I mean, she's. I mean, it's, it's, I'm, it's joking, ins- I'm joking. I'm joking. It, I but scared. it's, an it, you know, they joke about the three degrees of of Alex Jones on fa- on YouTube because it's like the notion is that. YouTube's recommendation engine is if they find out, and by the way, this is true of Facebook, too. If they find out that you are interested like or curious in one uh, conspiracy theory, they will feed you stuff on that, get you into a group. Because once you're in the group, then the self-reinforcing thing of the group makes your position more rigid and more extreme. And then once you're into one conspiracy theory, they're going to show you more conspiracy theories because if you will believe one, you'll believe more than one. And so we're in this really weird world. So imagine. So it's now April of of 2017, and I'm going. Oh my God! This is so much worse than I realized. They weren't the victims. The business model is part of this thing. But we still don't have any data. So Eli Pariser, the same guy with the filter bubble, gets Tristan on the program for the TED conference two weeks later. No notice. Normally people spend six months getting prepared. Tristan's got two weeks. But Eli pulls this miracle and so Tristan's off to do it. And uh, we go to TED. A thousand people. All, we think, the perfect audience for what we're going to say. He gives this great, impassioned delivery of the whole brain hacking speech. 18 minutes. Polite applause when he's done. We go around to collect business cards. I think we got two. Neither of which followed up, because, I mean, this is their world, right? I mean, let's face it: the TED audience is not a low-income audience. These are the same people who profited from Google and Facebook and Amazon and Twitter and Instagram and uh, you know WhatsApp and all that. So it's, you know, we're basically raining on a parade, and. We're like devastated, you know, I mean, because Tristan and I have decided that we're going to go and try to make people aware of this problem because he hadn't really, I mean, he'd sort of connected to the election thing, but not with the intensity I had and I had known nothing about his thing. So we thought together we could do something. So we go to New York, we meet a person, the financial times is interested. We meet people at the ACO. you're interested. And the woman who had done his makeup at 60 minutes turned out to be the personal makeup person for Ariana Huffington. And she says to Ariana, in the 10 years I've worked with you I've never told you that you needed to meet somebody but you need to meet this kid. So Ariana meets him and takes him under her wing, and all of a sudden she shepherds him to Bill Maher and all these other great places. Meanwhile, somebody hands me a business card for an aide to Senator Mark Warner. Senator Mark Warner is from Virginia. He is the co-chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, which at the time was the only committee of Congress where the Republicans and the Democrats were working together, and all the others. It was just open warfare. I call the guy up, and I go, I know you're doing all this work on Trump Tower and uh, WikiLeaks and all that. And I said, I know your jurisdiction is intelligence agencies, but you're the only functional committee in Congress. Who's going to protect us in 2018 and 2020 from interference on social media? And the guy was so smart. He goes, you're right. That's a really important question. We got to do it. I'm going to get you in to see the senator. It took a couple of months. We go in July to see the senator. Wait, so who was the guy that you talked with? Uh, I'm not going to say his name because he, he but he was. It he wasn't was, Warner. It was somebody else. A senior policy aide to Senator Warner. God, okay, him. and I talk about him a lot in the book, but I, I, I don't use his name because it, that's not done. Okay, but he's a wonderful guy, and I'm, we owe him everything. And uh, so we go and meet with Senator Warner, and it's. It's a wild thing because Warner is very sophisticated, and we're not the first people to bring this message to him. Uh, Glenn Simpson from Fusion GPS has been in, I think, roughly a month earlier with a very similar message that Warner just didn't pick up. But my biography came into play. i had been an investor. He'd been an investor. He'd been in cellular. I'd been in cellular. I was going
0: to say, didn't Warner have a business? Like he was a, he's like a business
1: tycoon. He, 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 well, in cellular. And so in Erie area I knew a lot about, we're sort of the same age. It was like all of a sudden the message was more acceptable for me than it was from from Glenn Simpson, which was weird because we thought we were bringing Tristan. We thought he was the whole message. But in this particular context, me being you know 20 years older made a huge difference. Anyway, we give him this thing, and he goes, what do we do? And Tristan goes, well, you've got to hold a hearing. you got to make Zuckerberg come in and explain why this happened and how they're going to protect 2018. So that helps to contribute to them creating the, 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 uh, the hearings in the fall of that year of 2017 that were actually about social media because nobody actually had jurisdiction for looking at social media. They had to invent it out of whole cloth. They had to try to tie it to the Russians to make it legit for their community. So we go away, but we leave them on this list of like seven or eight hypotheses about what must've happened. You know, like we had seen that this Russian American guy had started a, uh, campaign to have California secede from the union. I remember that. And he was living in Russia when he did it. And we're thinking to ourselves, If the Russians did that, we knew that had happened in 2014. So in all probability, they started either at that time or slightly before. So sometime between 2013, 2014 was when they started. And they started on issues designed to divide us as a country. So we hypothesized they probably went after Black Lives Matter, guns, all these other things that would, immigration, all these things that would be divisive. And we hypothesized that that. The Russians probably had a bigger impact on Trump's nomination than on the election because he, uniquely among the Republicans, had adopted all those same themes. And we give them this list of seven or eight. And within 30 days, the press has stories on all of them. And suddenly Warner and his team think we're Nostradamus, even though all we've done is just come up with the simplest explanation for publicly available stuff. It's pretty much the same thing I did with Mark the first time. So you say, you got to come back. And then we go back the second time. This time, instead of just meeting with, with uh, Warner and Elizabeth Warner, who were the only two people who would see us the first time.
0: Elizabeth Warren, the senator from Massachusetts. From Massachusetts, who was
1: really interested in the antitrust angles. she also Senate. on
0: the intel committee?
1: No. But she's on armed services. Oh, okay. and, but she was really interested in the antitrust implications of, of what these guys were doing. And right? what, what is antitrust? <laughs> so think of it this way. In the United States, we, when we first started out, we were rebelling against the King of England. And the King of England gave monopolies to every business that operated around the crown in exchange for them paying him off big time. And we associated monopoly with monarchy. And so we decided as America, we were always going to have lots of competition. We were going to favor the little guy over the big guy. And so for the next 100 and uh, really 200 years, we we had a systematic policy of trying to discourage companies from monopolizing industries and blocking competition. And that all changed in 1981 when uh, the Reagan administration came in, looked at all of the problems that were left over from the Vietnam War and the Great Society and the fact that the country had had the oil embargo and the economy was in a stagflation
0: thing. And Well, but your, your book, I want to pause here. Cause your book, you cover this history of our economy. Yeah. Well, they have, well, you have to read the book. I mean, I can't do the whole thing. I here. know, but it, but it, it crystallized things for yeah, me. Like yeah. it made me realize like the oil crisis yeah. was a pivotal um, event that enabled the rise of Reaganomics. Well,
1: it, it did, because if you think about it, we went through the Vietnam War, building up these huge deficits, and we did the Great Society at the same time so in a adi- Lyndon Johnson, in addition to the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, did some pretty wonderful things to try to give people who had been disenfranchised a much better shake and The result of it was that we were running up big deficits um, which we would have gotten through except the oil embargo comes in seventy three and seventy four and Suddenly our entire economy, which is running on 25 cent a gallon gasoline, is forced to deal with dollar plus gasoline and not enough of it with this rationing. There are all these terrible things going on and it basically blows up everything. And we have this long period of time where the economy doesn't grow and inflation goes bananas. Reagan comes in and, you know, he wants to revive things. And his notion was that he's going to reverse everything in the economy. So from 1931 until nineteen eighty one, we run for fifty years with this notion of collective action. We the made, New Deal. Well, it starts with the New Deal, but then there's the Second World War. And it's this notion that our shared interests are greater than the things that separate us. And so we're gonna invest in those shared interests. First we beat the Depression, then we beat the Nazis. Then we build the interstate highway systems. We go to the moon. We uh, build public schools. We build public universities. We we do all of this collective investment that everybody enjoys, and standards of living rise like crazy in the 50s and 60s. But then we blow things up and the oil shock happens, and all of a sudden the idea of changing that takes on great appeal. And for the first 10 years, I think you can make the statement that most people benefited from Uh, from changing away from supporting collective action towards individual action. And what it really did was it unlocked a lot of value in the economy. The problem is we've spent now almost 40 years doing the same thing over and over and over again, getting, you know, getting rid of more and more regulations, giving more and more power to the people who are already powerful and essentially doing nothing for most people. And, you know, so an idea that probably worked great for ten years and less well, but still well for ten, has been a disaster for the last eighteen. And so, you know, you're at this situation where Facebook and Google and all them show up for the last ten years of this thing. And you know, the other thing I talk about in the book a lot is this issue that when we got out of the Second World War, I mean, you know, we were coming out of rationing, we we're coming out of a world where we people gave up their lives in order to be Nazism. So we really had this shared identity. And the consumer packaged goods industry says, hang on, it's your turn to get what you want. You get to be a consumer now. So over a period of 50 years, they converted us from active citizenship to passive consumption with respect to goods. And then in you know, beginning in the early 2000s, Google and then Facebook come along and they say, we're going to do the same thing for ideas. We're going to give you exactly what you want. You never have to confront an unpleasant idea. You never have to actually compromise or debate with somebody. And you can imagine how destructive that is for democracy. I mean, democracy, by definition, requires active engagement. It requires deliberation. It requires some level of compromise because not everybody's there are legitimate reasons to see. An issue more than one way but if you can't even agree on the facts you can't even start
0: that process and that's what they did to us right well and basically facebook and google are monopolies right yeah,
1: oh yeah so so warren was really interested in this right and she sees us so we go and have these two meetings right and we have two people who clearly get it we don't even know that there's anybody else who does because nobody else would take us meet, a meeting with this thing so we go away we come back in september and in September, they've lined up. We have th- we go back with a third person, Renee Deresta, who is this genius researcher who had done the work on how conspiracy theories like anti-vax spread online. And she worked in Washington, as we say, in technical operations, which she doesn't like to talk about what that is, but you can guess. And um, so the three of us come back and we're supposed to have three days of meetings. And we've got, you know, it's back to back. It's like eight meetings a day for three days. But the first night, um, we get a, a short meeting with Adam Schiff, the head of the House Intelligence. It's my congressman. Exactly. So Adam, I don't know him, but he's, he's sent a campaign solicitation to me, a to, um, thing in my hometown, and I can't go. But I go, hey, I'll give you a contribution, but I want to meet the congressman in Washington. So we set up this thing, and he's going to have his first appearance on, on, I think, Chris Hayes on MSNBC. So he's got to leave early. So instead of half an hour, it's like only 15 minutes. And we describe what we're doing. He goes, What are you doing tomorrow? We got, Oh, we got a full day. He goes, Not anymore. You got a fuller day. You can have to divide and conquer. I need to see you at noon in the Rayburn room in the Capitol, which is basically the the place where they hold meetings in the Capitol if, if constituents are coming in. So Renee and I go and meet him there. Tristan goes, Does the meeting we were supposed to do? And we give him 15 more minutes with a staff guy there. And he looks at it and goes, what are you doing at three o'clock? We go, well, we got to go. We got all these things. He goes, no, you're going to have to. The two of you need to go down and meet the intelligence committee staff. So we go down this bunker, right? It's wild. It's the same thing that you see when they're coming out with this. Door with a red sign on it, it's inside there. It's like a skiff, right? Or- yeah, but we're outside. We're in the waiting room of that. We don't go into the inner inner sanctum. We're in the outer inner sanctum. Okay, okay. and you know we're not important enough to go to the inner inner sanctum. <laughs> and these two people come out, and this one very stern lawyer guy and a woman, not my age, but closer to my age than to to, to uh, uh, Renee's, with bright red hair, and. They sit down and they say, so what's your story? And I explain that, you know, we have these hypotheses about what must have happened. And we think that this should, requires digging into the social media companies, even though they're not tied to the Trump Tower and all this other stuff. And we, so we give them the summary hypothesis. And he says, the guy looks at me very sternly. and goes, we believe those hypotheses are sound. <laughs> Then the woman explains that she's been an intelligence agency for her entire career and just joined the committee and they've got this problem. They don't understand social media because they're not allowed to use it. I mean, you know, they've been on it, but they don't understand the inner workings. And Renee, who, shall we say, had similar life experience, starts explaining a piece of it to her. And they basically turned to us and go, Will you, we're going to have these hearings. Those, the thing that you guys were working on, that's going to happen. We're going to have one, too. We need you to train us. We think it's going to be roughly Halloween or the next day. So seven weeks away, would you train us? So Renee and I spend the next seven weeks teaching the staff of House Intelligence. Her about Twitter,
0: me about Facebook. Now, when you say the House Intelligence Committee, yeah, was it the just staff. the Democrats
1: Oh, no, no, it was just the Democrats. Because
0: the Republicans didn't want to touch any of it. They were stonewalling everything. They couldn't couldn't
1: care less. So we were only dealing with the Democrats at that point. Uh, All these things have have changed some since then. But at that point, we're just dealing with the Democrats because they're the only ones who want to look. And, And we still think this is mostly about the election, right? I mean, and so we go through this thing. They have the hearings. And as I describe in the book, we also, particularly Renee, provides questions to dozens of senators for the Senate hearings as well. And uh, the hearings were very successful in that it forces Facebook to finally admit that, yeah, the Russians had touched 126 million people on Facebook and it wasn't a random 126. It was targeted and only 131 million people voted in the election. Right. So pretty much, well, if you wanted to suppress the vote, they for sure would have hit every suppressible vote in America. And so, this has been a demonstrable success and so what winds up happening is i get invited to write this big speech or so it's not a speech a big essay for this insider washington thing called washington monthly it's policymaker thing tiny circulation of really important people and i write this thing is due to come out on the 8th of january and 8th of january 2018 2018 and on the 1st of january Mark Zuckerberg posts his New Year's resolution, which is to fix Facebook, which comes as a huge surprise because literally the day before, they're still telling everybody there's nothing to see or there's nothing to fix. And then he comes out with this long list of how he's going to fix it. So Washington Monthly accelerates the ship date of my thing. And it comes out on the 5th, and it reads, it's 6,000 words, and it reads like a point-by-point rebuttal, even though I'd written it two months earlier. And uh, all hell breaks loose. I mean... It comes out on Friday. The following Monday, Tim Berners-Lee, the guy who invented the World Wide Web, shares it with his, I don't know, half a million followers on Twitter. And suddenly the thing is outside the beltway and blown up like crazy. I get a call from a guy who works with George Soros who says, Mr. Soros has read your speech. And he he's going to give a speech in Davos. He thinks this is the important issue. He thinks you have all the right points. Would you be willing to collaborate with us? And then you're kind I, of a zelig like figure. No, totally. No, or... or, or you know, or uh, Forrest Gump, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, no, no. I mean, my whole career is like that, right? I mean, you know, I think the Bono thing, you think the General yeah. thing, you think you've you know, out with dead. Steve Jobs. No, Steve no, no. I mean, it's 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 nuts. And, and no, I do share all of that in the book because I have been ludicrously lucky, and it's all because of having no expectations and never making, never trying it to do any of those things. They all can't. With people like that, you can't go to them, right? They right. have to come to you, right? And for whatever reason, they did, but. The the long, the final piece was some a senior senior Facebook guy puts a tweet going who the bleep is Roger Magnin? This is Boz. yeah, Andrew Bosworth said. So I've been at Facebook since two thousand six. Who the bleep is Roger Mackin. And He puts the word and essentially that's a question I've asked myself a million times, right? But the press just decides they're going to find out, and so Boz, bless his heart, got me. Tens of millions in unduplicated reach in the ensuing
0: thirty days, and but th- that's also a sign that your message was hitting home. Apparently,
1: right? Yeah, no, no, they, 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 you know, finally, right? And so, and so, that's what caused me to, I, you know, the the original person from the Financial Times who had taken interest in our story back in in, in early May of twenty seventeen introduces me, says you got to write a book, introduces me to an agent. You know, the agent has like. I walk into his office and he's got floor-to-ceiling books that he's represented, every one of which has been a bestseller. He's got Fire and Fury, that insider book that Trump— He's just Andrew Wiley. Yeah, Andrew Wiley, right? So, I mean, he's just humongous. There's like no way he's going to do this with me, right? And I'm sitting there going, what the hell am I doing here? (laughs) I mean, I'm dressed really casually. He's this, you know, just extraordinarily elegant— Beautifully, impeccably dressed man. And what I didn't know is that he'd been like best friends with Lou Reed in the 60s. And so we actually had way more overlap than I realized. And at the half hour mark, he literally says, I want to do this book. I'm going, I'm sorry, you're going to have to repeat that because there's just, I mean, that just didn't compute. I said, Really? And he goes, Yeah. So we go and see, uh, we have to do a book proposal. And Andrew has this really weird way of editing book proposals. Like he says to me, who has no idea what should go into a book proposal. Well, you know, just write a proposal and then have a chapter outline and then a list of sources. So I do that. And he goes, I think you're going to need to polish it, which is code for this sucks. You really need to rewrite the whole damn thing. (laughs) So we go through this cycle for like three or four weeks. And finally he goes, it's done. We, we send it out and penguin press, we go to see penguin press the first day for a half hour meeting. And, you know, two hours, maybe two hours and 20 minutes later, we're done. And the next morning, they send a proposal. Now, this is February of 2018. We're still a month away from Cambridge Analytica. Right? I mean, we don't even understand the privacy issue yet. It hadn't broken. Because I mean, we don't. What do I know? Nothing. And explain to listeners what Cambridge Analytica means. Yeah. So so essentially, what we find out in the middle of, of uh march of 2018 is that facebook has had a plan of essentially getting business advantage by trading the private information of its users to people who will create applications that increase time on site it began with zynga the people made farmville and cityville and the poker game and all this other stuff. The game guys were the big target for it. But they had this program that lasted until 2014 that essentially if you were an app developer – on Facebook, you could get access to the friends lists of anybody who signed up for your app. And the reason they liked that was that if you could make the game social and get the friends playing it, then time on. basically what happened was when Farmville came along, people were spending two minutes a day on Facebook. But the people who played Farmville spent 60 minutes a day on Facebook, and they went, aha, the trick is to get all the friends onto this thing. So they, without telling anybody, they give the data away. The Federal Trade Commission in 2011 says, no, 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 you can't do that. You have to have prior informed consent. So Facebook signs a consent degree and then proceeds to ignore it. And in 2014, this researcher gets hired by Stephen Bannon and this company called, that he had created called Cambridge Analytica. Funded it, by Robert Mercer. Funded by Robert Mercer. And their job is to essentially, they're going to give um, conservative candidates around the world this new kind of data analytics capability what was called psychographics where you are basically going to be able to gather data and figure out people's voting tendencies and then influence those voting tendencies and they were going to tie it to facebook to get all the stuff and so they paid this guy to go into the program and he got at least 50 million facebook uh identities in the United States, 30 million of which had tons and tons and tons of data. And so from that thing, they were able to tie it to voter files and create a database which was extremely valuable. It wasn't like you couldn't reproduce it elsewhere, but it was demonstrably really valuable. The Guardian figures this out in 2015 and blows the whistle on it. Facebook is forced to go to Cambridge Analytica and tell them you have to destroy the database Please check off a box on this form that you've done that. And what they didn't tell anybody was that Cambridge Analytica obviously kept a copy of it and then gets hired by the Trump campaign, works inside Trump's digital headquarters in San Antonio, Texas, in the room next to the room where the Facebook and Google employees were helping Trump with his digital ads. Yeah, they had, like, embedded Facebook employees in their yeah. campaign who were yeah. helping them yeah. do it. The Clinton administration chose not to take embedded people for a variety of reasons, right? You know, And uh, I think the morality of putting people in these campaigns is extremely dubious. It happened under the Obama administration. I think it was a mistake then, and I think it was a mistake again in 2016.
0: And you make this point in the book, and I think it's worth underscoring, that the Obama campaign also used uh, Facebook data to target voters there was well, a... they
1: also they also they also harvested friend data but they were honest about it they, right that's the distinction did, well no there are two distinctions they did that and they also used the thing to ter- increase turnout whereas the cambridge analytica stuff was dishonestly acquired and then their goal was to to suppress votes got it so but i don't i don't think in retrospect i think the obama thing was not good and you know but I'm not per- the same it was not the same, but I still wouldn't allow it. Right. Okay. And, you know, I just think elections should be decided by voters. And the Bannon had a genius insight. And again, we didn't have this at the time. This is what we figured out afterwards is that his genius insight was that Facebook data and Cambridge Analytica stuff would allow you to invert the campaign business from persuading people that They should vote for you because of X, Y, or Z, you know, whatever it is you believe to identifying inside every single voter, their emotional weak spot, and then using that to either activate them as a voter or discourage them from voting. And it was demonstrably effective on the voter suppression.
0: So. Uh, I have to let you go soon. And so I think like uh, before I do. So we got to spend at least a few minutes talking about the future. That's what I want to. I want to say like, like, where are you now? Because this is such a fluid situation. It is. Your book doesn't read that. There's no way that the story has not
1: ended. No, no. In fact, the book is designed to give you the tools to analyze everything that was obviously going to follow it. Because I knew for sure that it was essentially chapter one of a long unfolding thing. So since then we've discovered a bunch of things. The most important thing we've discovered is that this is a problem with a business model and a culture in Silicon Valley and it extends beyond internet platforms like Google and Facebook. So Google had perfected this notion of surveillance capitalism. There's a woman at Harvard named uh, Shoshana Zuboff who's just written a brilliant brilliant book on it. It's huge but Totally worth reading. Essentially, this notion where in the old days, marketers and advertisers would gather data from consumers in order to improve a product or a service that would be used by those consumers. Google's giant insight was that using artificial intelligence, they could collect data from anywhere and then look for, uh, for patterns in it that might be exploitable economically. And so instead of, you know, they say in traditional advertising, you know, you're not the customer, you're the product. In Google's model, you're the fuel because you're unlikely to be the beneficiary of whatever thing they create with the data they get from you because they're looking at the social value. You know, what things about you say about other people who are sort of like you and that that social surplus is They don't pay anybody for that. And so when we bring monopoly law to bear to break these guys up, you know, they say, well, you can't you can't come after us because our products are free. That's not actually true. It's a barter of services for data. And if you value the services in data terms, the price has been going up geometrically with time. And so we will eventually beat them on that. But the problem goes beyond that. And this is where privacy becomes so important. That. We've basically allowed people to share data that they capture in the course of a business setting and to sell it at will without any restrictions. Because in the old days, there wasn't any harm. But now with AI, really bad things can happen. And so I want us to ask questions we never asked before, like, why is it legal for a credit card processor to sell your credit card information? I mean... I think we ought to have a debate about that because it's really private. And What does that even mean? They can sell your... Well, every credit card transaction you make. You know, where it is, what you bought, who you bought it from. Not like your card number, but just like your activity. Yeah. But now cellular companies can sell bundles of location data, right? And if you know anything about a person's purchase behavior and their web behavior, you can essentially de-anonymize the geolocation data. So why is it legal to sell geolocation data? Because you can create an absolutely high-resolution image of people from data that's freely available in the marketplace at very low prices. Why is it legal to sell any data at all about miners? Why is it even legal to collect it? These are questions we've never asked, and I think we need to ask. And you know, so we have to ask this about cellular companies, about credit card processors, about banks, right? I mean, all kinds of people. social media anonymous. companies and well, and obviously social media companies, right? And then you have to look at what's going on with surveillance because, you know, if you have bought any smart device with Amazon Alexa or Google Home in it, you have to ask yourself, are you prepared for what's going to happen here? Because I have an Alexa inside. Should I get rid of it? Well, here's the thing. Let's just talk about what it does. You have to make your own choices, right? But where is it in your house, right? Because Maybe it's okay in your kitchen because you, you've got kids and you've got to balance things and it's really useful. But what happens when you put it in your office? What happens when you put it in your bedroom? Remember, it's always listening. Now, Amazon tells you they're not recording, and I, I believe them today. But the temptation to record in the future will be very high, and really importantly, all these devices are made in China by companies that are currently on restricted lists for the Defense Department and the intelligence agencies. Oh boy! So you have to worry about them hacking, and then you have to worry about other people hacking. There was a malicious hack of a of a Google security system a couple of weeks ago, where a family, at least one family, was told that there was an incoming missile attack the way Right? So you have to – these are things where we just aren't asking the right questions because we don't have the right vocabulary. We haven't thought through how malicious this stuff is. And then AI. You've got this problem with artificial intelligence where, you know, the way they train in artificial intelligence is they take data from the real world. Well, the early results of this are not inspiring. Microsoft's had problems with uh, an AI-based facial recognition system – not being able to recognize women. Google had a problem not being able to recognize people of color. I mean, those are clear failures by the people who created the product, right? You know, they will sit there and say, to you, oh, technology is value neutral. And I go, nonsense. It, it takes the values of people who, put, who create it. So if you look at these ones that are designed to look at resumes, they train it with data that's filled with biases based on gender and race. So you have to take special steps to make sure that that implicit bias is not carried over in the AI. And they didn't do that. Same thing with mortgages. So redlining, which is this practice of not giving mortgages to people of certain races or religions in certain areas, that's been carried over. And these are black boxes with no right of appeal. And they can't even tell you how they made the decisions. So we need to, we need to step back. And the point I want to make to everybody is we have way more power in this than we realize. We have two kinds of power. We have the power to change our behavior. We may be addicted, but we can still alter what we do. And I'll give you an example. I avoid Google, and I treat it as a game. I treat it like Frogger. I'm the frog. Google's the river. And the logs are the alternative products. And I hop across from, you know... DuckDuckGo is my my search engine. Me too. And, and I use Safari as my browser, and I use the Microsoft productivity apps instead of instead of what Google. Would email? Docs. Do you use? Because uh, everyone... I use Exchange, but you could use Apple's Apple's uh, iCloud. Like me, like, like yeah, at me. Yeah, yeah, any of those. It's just not Google, right? So I'm trying to avoid Google. And the key thing is to just not have everything in one place. You have to spread it out among lots of people. And here's the problem. Every once in a while, I'm on the web, and there's some restaurant, and I inadvertently click on the map, and I go into Google Maps, so I fall into the river. <laughs> so my high score is two months. And I'm basically challenging everybody I meet to top my two months. Um, the hardest thing for me to avoid is Google Docs, because everybody uses Google Docs. Right. But, but these guys... You can't, you know, you sit there and say, oh, Roger, all my data is already out there and I'm, I'm okay because I don't do anything wrong. And I'm going true, but not relevant. They're using this stuff to manipulate people's behavior. And it may not even be you, right? If you live in Myanmar, you know, you don't have to use Facebook to be dead. You just have to be a Rohingya, right? right. The hate speech can still kill you. and. These things, This is real stuff. And when you look at it in the context of little kids, you go into a McDonald's and you see the four teenagers around the table who aren't talking to each other. They're texting each other. I mean, yeah. you know, this is not good stuff. And my point here is we have to demonstrate, these companies have to demonstrate safety, efficacy, and absence of bias before these products come out. Because the old Silicon Valley notion of, hey, just put it out there, let the customers deal with the consequences, That was okay when the products were little games or something. But it's not okay if you're touching the whole world. And it's a lot easier to do this with tech than it is with, like, pharmaceuticals. You don't need to take 10 years in a trial. But you do have to create standard software. It's got to be regulated. It does. It has to be deeply regulated. But it's got to be regulated by us, too, right? And so our two forms of power, we can change our behavior, and we can influence our elected representatives. They want to do something. I mean, the U.K. just came out with this thing where that basically – describing the employees of facebook as digital gangsters right because there have been no rules and they've taken full advantage of that and it's not just facebook i mean google does the same thing and instagram i mean you know there's nowhere to hide in the digital environment today so we have to regulate but we have to regulate smart you know and the smart thing to do is to ask the question there's whole categories of things like financial information or location information that maybe you just shouldn't allow to go around at all. That would solve a lot of the privacy problems. And, you know, consent in these things is a little bit like me, too, right? Because, you know, they say, oh, well, you've given consent. I'm going, well, it's kind of like the consent that a studio director gets with a a, a young actor or actress, right? You know, that's coercive. I mean, you've got this huge investment in Facebook or Instagram or, or, or Google, and their only choice is to abandon it. I mean, that's not fair. None of that's fair. So, these things are all about power. They're about privilege. And I just think that there's a lot more of us than there are of them. And we just need to get together and do this. And I wrote this book to provide, you know, a unifying thesis. And, you know, I'm not a perfect messenger for any of this stuff. I mean, I was involved, I profited from it. But I'm doing the best I can to try to fix a problem I contributed to making. And. You know, if I'm lucky, something good's going to come out of this.
0: Well, I appreciate uh, the fact that you had the clarity, like the moral clarity, to uh, re- respond when you saw this. Because I think what happens, and you you say this. There's a there's a great essay at the end of the book. It's like a I think it's called a bibliographical essay, yeah. essay where you kind of go through all the different books that you read. Uh, that inform. I'm trying to help. Pe- I'm trying to help people go through the same journey if they want to. Right, I, and I appreciate that because I always wonder these things. I mean, I know, you know. Um, but you talk about advising on the show Silicon Valley, yeah, and you talk about it's Mike Judge, yeah, and how he there's like a basic philosophy. That is guiding. So he invites. I got to tell the story because it's
1: funny. So he invites me to dinner after season one. So Mike Judge had worked in Silicon Valley in the late 70s at Lockheed. And so he had he had truly experienced the Apollo era. And so he had a good vibe. So he could get through season one. Plus, the actors, I think all but one of them grew up in Silicon Valley. So they'd all gone to school with people who were doing this stuff. So they were in the vibe this was a really well-crafted show. I get invited to dinner. It's like Mike, his, his showrunner, Alec Berg, and, and like three writers and me. And I'm going, I'm sorry. I need you to explain to me you what you're trying to do here. And he goes, look, Silicon Valley is in this titanic struggle between two value systems, the hippie value system of people like Steve Jobs and the libertarian value system of people like Peter Thiel from PayPal. I literally facepalmed, only time I'd ever done it in my life at that point. I'm going. That's genius. That's exactly what it feels like, right? And then I look around and go, "Oh, Pipe Piper, they're the hippies, and Huli are the libertarians, and everybody's nodding. Why am I here? Oh, <laughs> you can't find any other hippies. And they go. They're all nodding. And I'm going. Oh, so I'm going to be the the hippie advisor. They're all nodding. And every year since then, I've, the dinner has included both the, me and the Libertarian advisors. There are always at least three of them. There's so many more of them now because they've won, it's right? A, Just like Huli always wins at the end of the season. Well, right? that's the thing, though, is that I,
0: it's a very simple conceit, but it, I really believe it gets to something very deep, not only about Silicon Valley, but about our country.
1: Yeah, no, that's true. And the thing is, the country is a pendulum. You know, there's this incredible thing. That you should go on, um, you know. It's I think it's a documentary called "A Night at Madison Square Garden." So in 1939, on on February 20th, so the 80th anniversary is coming up on um, uh, this week. There was a rally of the American Bund, which was the Nazis in the United States, that sold out Madison Square Garden, and there is a seven minute documentary that you can watch, and I think it's called "A Night at the Garden." and uh it's really worth watching we have been here before okay i mean it, it's it's basically charlottesville with better wardrobe and better lighting okay i mean it you know they have this giant giant flags giant george washington thing you know all these people you know, doing the Hitler salute and, you know, um, a young Jewish man runs up on the stage to try to disrupt it. And they literally beat the crap out of him. I mean, it's an unbelievable documentary. It's only seven minutes long, but everyone should watch it. We have faced these problems before. Okay. Teddy Roosevelt got rid of the trusts, which were the original monopolies. And he did that in 1912 and 13. And, uh, we can do this. We really can. And, you know, There are so many good people in Congress. We just elected 40 new members who are average age, what, 40, maybe less than 40? You know, they're all digital natives. You know, we're getting smart in a hurry. There are plenty of members of the Trump administration who get that this is a problem. This is not a partisan thing. This stuff is right versus wrong, not right versus left. And, uh, you know, I've worked really hard to reach across the aisle because, You know, I saw it in the context of the 2016 election, but it shouldn't be about relitigating 2016. We have to protect the future elections because anybody can do this. These ad tools are designed to make them really easy to use, and they have targeting like you've never seen before. It's just incredibly easy to, you know, to subvert democracy, and we shouldn't allow that.
0: Well, I appreciate you writing this book. Um, I applaud you for uh, speaking up. And I, I wish you well. And I guess the last question is, is David Fincher going to make a movie out of your book? I mean, I feel like this would be the perfect bookend to the social network. You know,
1: this is this is only in my dreams, I think. But who knows? Let me tell you, you know, you pointed out that, that, that uh, my life is a series of remarkable coincidences. And, uh, you know, I'm very careful not to predict the future because you never can tell what will happen. But in my dreams, right? All right. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you.
0: Yeah. So can we just say the name of the book? Just so I'm going to introduce it, but it's called Zucked by Roger McNamee, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe, available now from Penguin Press. Roger, thanks for coming over. What a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, folks, that is Roger McNamee. His book, one more time, is called Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe, out there from Penguin. Go get your copy. Seriously. Read this thing. You can follow Roger on Twitter. His handle there is at Moon Alice. At Moon Alice. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thanks to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com slash pod. Don't forget about the other people with Brad Listy app. This show has its own official app. It's free. Go get it wherever you get your apps. What's going on next week? We'll see. I still got to figure it out. I've got some good uh, good shows in the works for you, but I'm not en- entirely certain about scheduling yet. So I'm not going to make any promises. I'll let you know on Twitter. Follow my show, or you can follow this podcast at Other PPL on Twitter. But it, I'm not on Facebook. Fuck Facebook. I'm not. I'm not doing it. So. What else can I tell you? It's, it's, you know, it's a disturbing message, but an important message to hear. The fact that these social media platforms have grown so powerful and can have such an impact on civil society, something we should all be concerned about. Don't forget to uh, reach out to Mick Grantham at disorder at gmail.com if you want to see what's what with the Disorder Salon down in New Orleans, Louisiana. If you want to, you know, if you, are you a writer? You want to go down there and read? You want to do a book tour stop in uh, New Orleans? Not such a bad gig. Check it out disorder at gmail.com. And don't forget to read thenervousbreakdown dot com. And if you want to uh, submit your work to thenervousbreakdown dot com, be it uh, an essay or short story or a poem, something like that, just reach out to uh, Joey Grantham, Jay Grantham at thenervousbreakdown dot com. He's the editor in chief. I think he has email where he lives in uh, North Carolina. Somehow, he's got a generator. <laughs> I tease. Joey, I tease you. I think somebody prints out email and delivers it to him. He then responds by hand, and the uh, written messages that he scribbles on a piece of paper are then transcribed and sent back from an email address that supposes to be his. It's a very sophisticated operation. What can I tell you? Hey Mark Zuckerberg, what's your problem, bro?